Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, you'll find the, uh, the notes and the insert. If you don't have a Bible, the text is written on the back of the insert. Luke chapter 10. It's Christmas morning. I gave some thought to doing a, a Christmas-focused message. And the more I thought about our text this morning and the parable of the Good Samaritan, the more I thought it, it, it fit well um, that there was much here that tied in with the notes and themes of Christmas. And my goodness, that is the world's largest coffee cup. You've got to hold that thing up. That is, that is no way now you can't be distracted when that is in the front row. I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry. I just, wow. You could baptize infants in that thing. You could, wow. Okay. I'm sorry. We'll edit that out of the tape. We'll edit that out of the tape. Um, Parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10. We, we looked at the beginning of this last week. I'd like to begin by reading our text in full, and then a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, if you were here last week, we pointed out that this this narrative, this text takes place over two discussions, two, two paragraphs. First, we have verses 25 through 28, and then we have 29 through 37, and they follow identical patterns. In each instance, Luke has the lawyer stand up. Luke gives his motive for speaking. In the first instance, to put Jesus to the test. In the second instance, he might justify himself. And then he asks Jesus a question. In the first instance, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In the second instance, who then is my neighbor? Then Jesus, rather than answering the question, gives an answer of sorts and then a counter question. In the first instance, how do you read the law? In the second, 
Who then proved to be this man's neighbor? Then the lawyer gives his answer to Jesus' counter question. And then Jesus gives a final word of command. In the first instance, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Then in 37, you go and do likewise. So last week we looked at the first interaction, the first set of this pattern, and then this morning we'll look at the second. And the lawyer is asking Jesus a critical question. We looked at that, but he's not asking it authentically, legitimately. This is not a man whose conscience is racking him, who has come to Christ. I need to know. This is a test. When you test someone, implicitly you place yourself over them in authority. Teachers give tests to their students. Professors give tests. This man is placing himself above Jesus to test Jesus, and Jesus quickly turns that on him, even though he stood up to put Jesus to the test. Before you know it, he's answering Jesus' questions, and Jesus is evaluating his answers. You've answered well. I mean, if I were the lawyer, how did that just happen? But our Lord does not submit to the test. He will test. He will judge. And Jesus surprisingly pointed him to the law. And we looked last week, why is that? Especially when other times Jesus will point people to himself. And the answer we gave is that God's law was designed, is designed to humble hearts, to convict the hearts of sin. And where people are unaware of their sinfulness, where people are unaware of their need, inevitably Jesus and the apostles point people to the law. That's exactly where Jesus points the rich young ruler to the law. But where there is brokenness of spirit, contrite hearts, then Jesus and the apostles point people to himself. That was the answer we came up with. So Jesus points him to the law. This this lawyer, this expert of God's law, even though he can quote it inside and out, really has no inkling of an understanding of God's righteousness therein declared and his own sinfulness. And so Jesus, what, what, what's your reading of the law? You should know the answer to this question. And he answers correctly. In fact, the answer the lawyer gives is precisely the answer that Jesus and other accounts will give when asked what the greatest commandments are. In one sense, this lawyer understands the central points of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, your neighbors, yourself. And basically what that answer is, is this. If, if you want life, if you want to attain to the resurrection of the just, if you want eternal life, you, you have at least two options. One, you can perfectly love God with all of your being all of the time. And you can let the demonstration of that love consistently be to your neighbor. Now that is supposed to well up within us the thought, I, I, I can't do that. I don't love God with all of my heart, soul, and mind for three consecutive seconds. Now this lawyer skips over that. His, his counter question doesn't, doesn't address that. Maybe it's because somehow he thinks he actually loves God with all his heart, soul, and mind. Maybe it's because... It, the people around him cannot measure that. That's not the part that can be observed. He directs his question, his counter question in this text, to the second aspect of the law, the, the, the horizontal aspect, the loving of neighbor. And that's what we dive in here. So Jesus points into the law, and Jesus says, look, if you can do this, if you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind, and strength all the time, you can love your neighbors yourself, you're good. You need no Savior, you're fine. The Bible's clear on that. If we would be capable of perfectly obeying God all the time, we'd be fine. We would be perfectly fine. 
but we know better. And Jesus is attempting to help this lawyer know better. A lawyer, maybe seeing some problem, having some inkling of the issue, asks a question. He skips right over the first demand. And sadly, we looked at this last week. Rather than letting the law and its requirement humble him, letting God's holiness, just the highness of God's glory and holiness, show him how impossible it was for him to reach that, this man thinks to himself, hey, if we can just redefine, if we can just tweak who neighbor is, I think we might be okay. Inevitably, that is what people do who don't want grace. They, they lower God's requirement. If we just lower the bar enough, I think we can be okay. So, let's dive in then, look at the lawyer's question, and who is my neighbor, and Jesus' stunning response. Who is my neighbor? Now, Luke gives us his, his motivation here. Self-justification. And at the end of the day, these are the two options you have when you stand before God. You can stand on your own merits, self-justification. Within you is what you need to pass. And along this line of thinking, God will apparently judge some, well, if you gave it your best shot, if you were a good sort of chap. You know, I know I had some bad days, Lord, but most of the time I, I did my bit. And somehow that's going to pass. That's, that's what self-justification is pointing to. Something in me, something within me, something in self will justify me, will let me pass God's judgment. The lawyer wants to do that. He doesn't want justification from without. He wants it from within. He wants, he wants on his own merit and on his own terms to be just. And somehow he thinks, if we can just tweak this definition of neighbor, I think, I think we can pull this off. It reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they commit cosmic treason. They incur the death penalty against an omniscient, all-knowing, all-seeing God. And Adam's brilliant idea, hey, we can just get some fig leaves. I think we can get through this okay. That's just the lawyer's bright idea. Remember, Jesus has just praised God because he blinds the wise and reveals truth to babes. This is a wise man. This is a man who could quote the Bible far more extensively than any of us, most likely had the entire Old Testament memorized. And his big bright idea after facing the requirement of God's law, is if we can just tinker with and tweak this definition of neighbor, I think we'll be okay. Lawyer's motive is self-justification. People like this appear in Luke's gospel with regularity. Jesus in Luke 18.9 told a parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Already he's diagnosed the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes as those who think they are well. They don't need a physician. This man wants to justify himself. Luke, um, and Luke's traveling companion, Paul, elsewhere in Romans 10, summarizes this problem. Even though they know God's law, they've got God's law, they've read it inside and out. Listen to Paul's summary of the problem with his fellow Jews in Romans 10, 2-3. I bear them witness they have a zeal for God. It takes a fair amount of zeal to memorize the Old Testament. It takes a fair amount of zeal to go through all those um, liturgical requirements. But not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Again, we're hardwired to want to earn, to want to work, to want to force God to accept us on our terms. Just as I am, 
is deal with me. And so we resist God's righteousness. That's, that's what he's seeking. And so that brings him to his question. Who is my neighbor? This is critical. Who is my neighbor? If we're, he recognizes to love your neighbor as yourself, and that's a pretty high standard, because I love myself pretty well. I mean, even, and we've got to stop and pause it for a moment, because we live in a culture where, where self-esteem is, is touted everyone. We think that many people, their problem is they don't love themselves. But as we'll see even in this parable, the ways that the Samaritan expresses love to his neighbor, I've never seen someone not do. I've never seen someone, self-esteem aside, think, you know what, I just don't deserve to go to the doctor. Never seen someone do that. I've never seen someone with low self-esteem choose the bad parking space because clearly there are more important people than me who deserve that really good close parking space. Which isn't to say that, that low self-esteem isn't something people feeling terribly about themselves, but at the end of the day, the ways that this man loves his neighbor, we, we all love ourselves. If I'm bleeding, I get a Band-Aid. If I'm sick, I take myself to the doctor. If I need to go somewhere, I use my vehicle. And I, and I use my money to pay my bills, Right? We all do this. We all love ourselves in that way. All of us. He wants to know, who is my neighbor? And and two things come out of that question that that reveal where he's going and what he's trying to do. First, he sought to limit his love. He sought to limit his love. The point of this question is not trying to identify the people to love, but trying to identify the people he doesn't have to love. We know this from other places in, in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus quotes them. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So there's neighbor and there's enemy. You love the one, you hate the other. Now Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain has already told them to love their enemies. So this guy's trying to get this circle of who are the people that I need to love so then I can know who are the people I don't need to love. He's trying to limit his love. He wants to love less Less people. Secondly, he sought to legislate his love. And and this is the crucial issue here that, that Jesus' parable undoes. He wanted rules, commandments, guidelines. He wanted love to follow the rules. He wanted to legislate his love. Tell me who the people are so I can identify them, the criteria by which I identify the people I must love. Then I'll know by those rules, who to love. So give me the rules, give me the list, give me the principles, and I will then be able to know who to love. And yet in Galatians 5, 22-23, Paul, speaking under the freedom of the new covenant, says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But understand, he wants to limit the sphere of who he's to love, and he wants to know the rules of how to love. He wants the guidelines. He wants to make this an issue of law. So then, following the pattern, Jesus gives an answer and counter question. Now notice here, at some level, the pattern breaks. The first time, where does Jesus direct the, the lawyer to? He directs him to the law. Jesus does no such thing here, and I think that's important. The man wants rules for who to love. And Jesus could have taken him to many passages in the Old Testament that say things like, even if your enemy's donkey falls into a ditch, you will help it out. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Commandments about loving the alien and the sojourner, 
because you were aliens and sojourners in a foreign land. Jesus could take him through an inductive Bible study of all the places we're called to love different people, and and then the, the lawyer would have his rules of who to love, and that would, in some sense, also silence him. But Jesus does something far more significant here. He cuts to the root of the very motive for the question. He does not point him to the law. Rather, he shows him what it means to be a neighbor and challenges the fundamental question he's asking by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is not explaining who neighbor is by pointing to this text of Scripture. He's showing the, Samar- he's showing the lawyer who, who your neighbor is and what it means to be a neighbor in a sort of self-evident way. Let me tell you a story, and it's going to be so clear and so obvious so wonderful and beautiful what's going on here there's no denying it that's what he's doing rather than let me give you the rules and so we take a look now at the parable of what is frequently called the good Samaritan but really the compassionate Samaritan Jesus replied a man was going down from Jericho from Jerusalem to Jericho sorry Jerusalem is a couple thousand feet above Jericho, so all roads from Jerusalem generally go down, and the road from Jerusalem to Jericho certainly goes down. And it's a dangerous road, apparently. A man, and, and literally the text is a certain man. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. The parable follows three points. First, you have the man and his plight. Now, it's significant that Jesus does not identify who this man is. That's our first hint that Jesus is not really going to answer the lawyer's question. The lawyer wants, give me the rules, give me the grid, give me the guidelines to identify neighbor. And yet this man has no identity. A lot of people implicitly assume because a Samaritan shows up, this is about the racial tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. For all we know, this man is a Samaritan as well. We just don't know who he is. And with Jesus identifying everyone else clearly, the a certain man sticks out. We, we don't know who he is. All we know about him is his plight and his need. That is the only way we can identify him. He's just a certain man who's in need. He falls among robbers. He's robbed, beaten, stripped, left half dead. That's it. That's all we know about him, is his need. He's unidentified, nondescript. We simply don't know who he is. In contrast to that, we get a clear identification of the next three people who enter this narrative. A priest and a Levite. And it's important to note, they're coming again down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the fact that Jesus picks Jerusalem is also rather significant. Where is Jesus just set his face to go? Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he'll be turned over by the hands of men, the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees 
will kill him. He's already told his disciples, this is the very city Jesus is going to, and these are the very people who Jesus said in chapter 9 were going to kill him. And yet, these, this priest, this Levite, are people who are supposed to be caring for, ministering to the people of Israel. And we don't know why they pass by, and a lot of ink has been spent speculating. And, and again, in text where Luke reveals motives to people, when he doesn't, I don't know if we need to try to speculate. They'd simply pass by. But the pattern is there. They see. There's no mistaking that. They see. They understand. Here is this man, almost dead, beaten, robbed, bleeding, half dead. And they not only pass by, they move to the other side of the road. There's a certain amount of avoidance. Now, people have suggested perhaps they passed by because they didn't want to become ritually unclean. I don't know. They're, they're moving away from Jerusalem. It's not as though they're on their way to the temple for work. If anything, they've completed their service at the temple and are leaving Jerusalem because they're going down the road. What marks the difference between them and the Samaritan is only one thing. And as far as motive is concerned, there's only one thing. We know this. The Samaritan felt compassion. They didn't. I think that's the point. Rather than trying to psychoanalyze these people who don't actually exist, they realize they don't exist. All the contrast is supposed to show they didn't feel compassion. Whatever other reasons they had, they didn't feel compassion. They avoided this man. And they passed by on the other side. Enter the Samaritan. And we've got to pause again and talk about Samaritans for a second. We know already from Luke's Gospel, and we certainly know from other passages of Scripture, that the Jews held the Samaritans in utter contempt. The Samaritans were those remnants of the ten northern tribes. Remember, the ten northern tribes in judgment were, were swallowed up, taken away by Shalmaneser. Well, there were some stragglers who left behind who intermarried with those pagans, and they lived in the land, and they developed a sort of um, syncretized, bastardized version of Judaism, where they only recognized the first books of Moses. They had an alternate place of worship. Remember when Jesus and the woman by the well, they're having a discussion, is it this mountain or that mountain? They worshiped on Mount Samaria. And the Jews held them in utter contempt, and their interpretation was, because you're an idolatrous, unfaithful people, that's why God swallowed you up into judgment. I mean, never mind the fact that God also took the, the southern tribes into judgment as well. We won't talk about that. But, and we know that they would go out of their way, extending their journeys by you know, 50, 60, 70 miles to avoid walking through Samaria. And we know in John 4, the Jews would never even, the woman is shocked that Jesus asks her for a drink because Jews don't ask Samaritans for help. So when we look at a Samaritan, a priest, and a Levite, and we think, who's most likely to demonstrate what the law requires? The last person on that list would be the Samaritan. Yet this Samaritan, he follows the pattern. Look, he saw. And then a wonderful change takes place in the narrative. He saw the man. He had compassion. Notice what the Samaritan did not do. He did not consult the rules. He did not consult the law. He spontaneously, authentically, genuinely felt 
compassion. And that then leads to all the actions he does next. The Samaritans saw him and felt compassion. What does he do? He went to him. Took him presumably in his arms. He, he bandaged him. He, he poured oil and wine over him. He, he tended to his wounds. These are medical treatments. Wine is a disinfectant. Clothed him presumably. Set him on his own animals. So now he has to walk. He had his own transportation. But now he's given that to this man, this unnamed man. He took him to an inn. So he's on, on a journey. He's, he's, he's introduced as he's journeying. He, presumably some sort of merchant. He's got things to do. He's on a journey, and yet he stops his journey, goes out of his way, takes him to an inn, pays for his immediate expenses, and then sets up a line of credit. I mean, this is lavish kindness. And this is the type of thing that could be abused. This innkeeper could, well, actually, we had to do a lot here. And, you know, when he comes back and he could, he's opening himself up, be taken advantage of. Then he leaves, presumably. So Jesus tells this story of this Samaritan who felt compassion unexpectedly. And he gives his own counter question then back to the lawyer, but he subtly changes it. You, you can't miss this. The lawyer wanted to know, who is? Who is my neighbor? I need to identify this other party, whether they are neighbor or not, because if they're neighbor, then I need to love them. If they're not neighbor, presumably don't have to. So I'm looking for rules, criteria, guidelines to identify neighbor when I see someone else. Jesus doesn't answer that question. His question doesn't answer that at all. He wants to know not who is my neighbor. Jesus asked him this, who proved to be a neighbor? Who acted like a neighbor? Who showed themselves through what they did to be a neighbor? And this subverts the lawyer's question entirely. Subverts it absolutely entirely. Puts it upside down. The lawyer wants to be reserved. And until I identify someone as a lawyer, I don't need to love you. I mean, as neighbor, I don't need to love you. Until I identify that I'm interacting with a neighbor, I don't need to do anything towards you. And then once I identify you as neighbor, well, now I guess now I need to love you. Rather, Jesus shows how this, this cursed Samaritan can act as a neighbor. The issue isn't identifying an obligation, but rather being a neighbor. It's not the question of who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I being? That, that's the next point. Not who is my neighbor, but to whom am I being a neighbor? Not, not who out there is neighbor to me, but rather who am I neighbor to? Who is my neighbor? Let me read a quote to help explain what I'm trying to say here. Having completed his exposition parable, Jesus, as before, counters the question of the legal expert with a question of his own. Interestingly, however, his counter-question proposes a focal shift. Rather than asking again, who is my neighbor, Jesus inquires, who acted as a neighbor? The lawyer's question would have focused on whether the wounded man possessed neighborly status. The parable has failed to provide the necessary grounds for conjecture on this matter. We don't know who he is. 
it is a non-issue. Rephrased, Jesus' question presupposes the identification of anyone potentially as neighbor, then presses the point that such an identification opens wide the door of loving action. By leaving aside the identity of the wounded man and by portraying the Samaritan traveler as one who performs the law, and so as one whose actions are consistent with an orientation to eternal life, Jesus has nullified the worldview that gives rise to such questions as, who is my neighbor? The entire purity-holiness matrix of the lawyer has been capsized. I just want to stop and, and try to unpack what he's saying there. The lawyer wants to start from, I need to identify who this other person is. Jesus flips that around as if to say, well, why would you ask? Let me show you, in essence, you can be anyone's neighbor. Whenever you love someone, whenever you feel compassion for someone, whenever you reach out and, and do these types of things, you are being their neighbor. Neighborliness is not something legally established. It's, it's, it's established by actions. You become someone else's neighbor when you act like this. I mean, think of it. Otherwise, if that's not the case, then this becomes another new law. And that can't be the case because the Samaritan's love is so lavish. This isn't just help someone in need. If this is some new law, if this is really the law, then we have to start figuring out, okay, not only do I have to help them, but how many days do I have to pay for their medical care? Three days? A week? What does the law require? That's not, that's not the issue. The issue is Jesus is picking the man most unexpected to fulfill the law, most unexpected to be a neighbor. And just by showing him do this, reveals his true neighborliness. And this is lavish love coming out of compassion, not coming because the Samaritan consults the rules and says, okay, the rules say this is what I have to do. Rather, because he loves, because he has compassion. It's, it's, it's a self-evidentness. It's undeniable. And so Jesus counters with the question, not who is my neighbor, but to whom am I being a neighbor? And the lawyer gets it. And I think here, and it's the only place in the text, we get some signs of hope for the lawyer because the lawyer could try to dodge Jesus' question. Instead, he, he walks right into it. Now, your English Bibles don't make this clear, but his answer literally is the one who did mercy. The one who did mercy. And that's significant because throughout this discussion, the opening question, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to get eternal life? And then Jesus' answer in verse 28, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. What do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus says, okay, who, who proved to be a neighbor? The one who did mercy. The one who did mercy. And then Jesus' answer, you go and do likewise. See, love and mercy are very difficult things to legislate. What did the Levite what did the priest lack? Compassion. How do you legislate compassion? How do you, how do you require of hearts to feel sympathy and empathy and love? The Samaritan doesn't look to a rule book. He rather, he feels compassion. He, he acts on that. And there, the extravagance and the lavishness of his love isn't coming because he's trying to keep some code, but because it's his own love and compassion being expressed. 
The entire approach of this with rules and grids and neighbor and not neighbor is missing the point utterly of what God is calling from us to do. The lawyer gets that. The one who did mercy. And there are points in the law that make this as well. It it echoes Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to love kindness or to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the same type of love and compassion that God has already expressed. Remember back in in Luke chapter 7, we dealt with Jesus coming across that funeral procession, the widow whose only son had just died. That exact same pattern that we see here happened there. Jesus, when he saw her, felt compassion. And thus, the raising of the widow's son. This was not planned. This is a spontaneous act of love on Jesus' part. We've seen this. You go further back in Luke to chapter 1. Zechariah prophesying about the coming Christ. Why would God send His Son into the world? Because the tender mercy, same word of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. God felt compassion for us. He sent His Son. God didn't send His Son because there was some rule to keep. God sent His Son because He felt compassion. Jesus raised the widow's son not because there was some rule to keep, but because He felt compassion. God God is not calling us to any standard, any ethic. He does not perfectly model Himself. So, Jesus' own story then has effectively nullified the framework from which the lawyer is asking his question. The lawyer wants to know the rules. And what Jesus does in essence is, let me show you something better. Let me just show you what genuine, authentic, spontaneous love looks like. And do you see how that love and compassion creates a neighborly status? Do you see how the Samaritan in what he does becomes the neighbor of this man, this unidentified man? Neighborliness is established through love and what we do. And that means then that you can be anyone's neighbor. And isn't that beautiful? Isn't this lovely? Isn't what this man does wonderful? The lawyer walks right into it, doesn't, doesn't try to dodge it, completely concedes the point to Jesus, the one who did mercy. I really hope it was clicking for him then. Which then leads to Jesus' final word, of command. You go and do likewise. In that sense, he's paraphrasing Leviticus 18, 4 through 5. Remember last week when he says, Love your neighbors yourself, he's quoting Leviticus 19. Well, in Leviticus 18, verses 4 through 5, we read, You shall follow my rules, keep my statutes, and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules if a person does them. You shall live by them. I am the Lord. So now we're back to the same crux and dilemma that we had at the end of last week. And we don't know how the the lawyer responds, so I guess we can hope played out a little differently. What, What Jesus has just done in only examining the second greatest commandment is shown him this heart of love and compassion that reaches and and, and it reaches out lavishly to others. This is what God's been getting at. This is what God's been calling from us. Which gives you two options then. 
You can take this, this parable of the Good Samaritan, you can take this ethic, and you can turn it into some new law, some new standard by which you can merit eternal life, and you will perish. We can just make this one more thing, and we'll get into arguments about, okay, how many days do we have to pay for their medical care? And We, we can do that. We can try to turn this into some sort of way to merit eternal life, and you will perish. You will perish. Or you can trust in the one who first showed this love and live. You can trust in the one who first showed this love and live. You see, the law was necessary. The law is necessary. And in my household, rules get made generally in response to infractions. So we didn't used to have a rule that you can't you know, jump on your brother or sister's head. But then one day, surprise, we needed that law. But I have a hope and a dream that one day my children will not jump on each other's heads, not because there's a rule to consult, but because they love each other. Right? I mean, that's what we're shooting for. Right? You, you see that. You see how the person who has to look to the rules to love is not as mature and not loving as they ought as the person who acts in love spontaneously. So yes, we, we need rules. We need rules because we're sinful. And so my children need to know that there are things they ought not to do. They should know already that those are bad. They should know already those things aren't loving. But we make laws. We make rules. But, but as we're growing them up, as they're tutored by them, eventually we hope they will arrive at a level where they love and are compassionate and kind, not because there's a rule book they consult, because God's worked in their hearts. Because God's mercy and grace is there. Because it comes naturally and authentically. So, so we can take this parable, we can take this, and the lawyer the first time around as Jesus pointed him to what God required did exactly that. He tried to, to tinker with it to make some way that he could pass this test and merit eternal life. You do that, you're going to perish. You're either going to do one of two things if you try to do that. You're either going to tinker with God's standard and lower it down and down and down until you pass. You know, and, and, and eternal life becomes something like just do your bit, just try hard, just take care of your family, just go to church, whatever. Just Usually it's just be better than Hitler, right? You, that's one way you can resolve it. The other is you will just bear this burden because you will never be good enough and you will never love like this and you will never love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. And you'll know that. You'll be trying and you'll be trying and you'll be crushed by this burden that neither us nor our fathers could bear. Or we could see in the person of Jesus Christ this love modeled perfectly for us. I pointed this out, right? Jesus, that whole pattern, seeing, feeling compassion, acting, Jesus has done that already in Luke's Gospel. And if you're a Christian this morning, that has already happened to you. Turning your Bibles to an unusual text for Christmas morning, but turning your Bibles to Ezekiel, chapter 16, where the Lord describes in a reminiscent image how it is that He saved Israel and His people. So ultimately, this, this love, this kindness, this mercy, what we celebrate on about Christmas morning, is God being that neighbor to us. God's neighborly heart demonstrated as He sends His Son. Ezekiel chapter 16. We'll pick it up in 
verse 4, speaking to Israel. And as for your birth, on the day where you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. I suggest to you that is an even worse fate, an even more dire predicament than the man who fell upon robbers. This child is unwanted and left for dead. The umbilical cord isn't even cut. The, the vernax, the blood is not wiped off. Bare, no clothing, in a field. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen, covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. If you're saved, if you're in Jesus Christ, that, that, that's a description of what God has done for you. God demonstrated that neighborly love. He saw us in our weakness. That's Paul's phrase from Romans chapter 5. While we were still weak, while we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus has modeled this perfectly. Jesus did love the Lord, his God, with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his strength. Jesus has seen us in our weakness, in our affliction, in our death and decay. And whereas it cost the Good Samaritan a pretty penny, cost the Lord Jesus his life. And just as the Good Samaritan took care of not only of the immediate problems and expenses, but all future ones, Jesus has not just dealt with our immediate problem in his life and death on the cross, paying for our sin, but all heavenly blessings are secured, our, our continued sanctification, our glorification, our adoption. He will come again to receive us. So again, you can read this story, this parable of the Good Samaritan, and you can try to turn this into some ethical way to merit eternal life, you will perish. Or you can trust in the one who first showed this love and live. 
and understand that the birth of Christ that we celebrate this morning is one piece in that love being demonstrated to us. God sent His Son into the world. He saw our condition. He had compassion. Not because of a rule, but according to Deuteronomy 7, 7 7-8, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. Through the least of all peoples. Well, then why did God love us? If it's not because we're great, if it's not because we're wonderful, if it's not because we're plentiful, why did He love us? Verse 8, I love this. It's because the Lord your God loves you. Why does God love you? Because He loves you. Because He's who He is. He felt compassion. Now we're going to sing a closing Christmas carol. And I just would call you to, to see in the birth of Christ this act of rescue, this act of redemption, this act of love. And rather than trying to meet this standard to merit and earn your salvation, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Turn to Him. And then with a new heart, we by the Spirit, not because of law, but because of Him working in us, can begin to live this way. Let's, let's sing. Dan, if you'd come up and lead us in our closing song. Thank you.